be in the first 33 verses of that chapter this morning as we continue looking at uh, the lives of Isaac and of Jacob, the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, to see uh, the things that they went through and how God uh, worked in and through their lives. You know, movie sequels are not uncommon today. And one of the knocks that people have against movie sequels is that the sequels rarely live up to the, the hype of the, of the first movie. And a, a lot of the reason for that is because the plot line really doesn't change that much in movie sequels. For example, the movie Rocky and all the sequels, we, what's going to happen in the, in the Rocky movies? Well, Rocky's going to take a beating, but in the end he overcomes, he draws strength from within, and he, and he wins. And, and that's the, the essence of the Rocky movies. The Jaws movies, what happens? There's a big shark that eats a lot of people, and finally they kill the shark. Jurassic Park movies, there's big dinosaurs, they escape, they eat a lot of people, and dinosaurs are killed or captured in the end. Star Wars, uh, one of my favorite movie series. And last uh, year there was a, a new Star Wars movie that came out. And one of the major criticisms people had against the, the new episode is that it was exactly the same plot line as the original Star Wars movie was. Now while these movie sequels may lack in creativity, one thing that they are effective in is bringing a new generation into the stories. For example, being able to take my kids to the movie theater and, and seeing the Star Wars plot line unfold and, and what they see is a brand new movie. And for me, I'm like, I guess the same movie all over again. But it's really cool to be able to introduce a new generation to such a, a, a wonderful thing. Now, there are concerns, rightfully so, about the future of America because of the shrinking influence of the church today. But one thing that excites me is that there is hope. I look around our congregation, I see more and more young people coming into our church, more and more young people being raised in Christian homes, and I, and I see afresh that God is bringing up a new generation that will not only live and flourish in our time, but will take the gospel, and I pray and I hope and I expect them to take the gospel to further places than we have ever been. The plot line has not changed. It's still the same gospel message. But we are exposing a new generation. And in seeing that, I believe, and looking in this scripture this morning, you can trust God to keep His promises and accomplish His will in each and every succeeding generation. While we may see that, that there's not a lot of hope, that there's a lot of darkness in our nation today, and, and the church needs reviving, we can expect God to keep His promises and fulfill His purposes in each and every generation, not because we are faithful, but because God is faithful. And that's what we see today in Isaac's story following in the footsteps of his father, Abraham. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, this morning with me as we look at Genesis chapter 26. We'll be reading the first six verses today, and Moses writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. 
For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I, which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in who you are today. We are so grateful, God, that you allow us to enter into your presence. We thank you for all of the prayers and all of the songs and all the fellowship and all the the studies this morning because we do see, God, how you are tying all these things together and preparing our minds and our hearts for, God, your holy word. And we approach this word today with reverence because it is your word. We approach it, God, with a sense of expectation because we believe this word is living and it is active and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And it is this word that brings life out of death and brings light out of darkness it is the power of this word that transforms and shapes lost sinners like us into the image of your son Jesus that's our prayer today God as we come to this word we humble ourselves God Father open us up prepare us for what you have for us today and we pray the end result is you are glorified we ask this in Jesus name Amen Thank you. You may be seated. So we looked at last week, we have seen that Abraham's promise that he received from from God was passed down to his son Isaac. And we see many similarities between the the lives of Abraham and and the life of, of Isaac. We don't see a lot as far as material is concerned in the Bible. In fact, this chapter is is probably one of the only ones in the, in the Bible that really emphasizes the story of Isaac. We see a lot of similarities. In fact, the name Abraham appears seven times in this chapter. Talk about be, being, having a difficult time escaping the shadow of your father. <laughs> that's, that's Isaac. But we see the plot line staying the same. God has chosen one whose descendants will be many. And eventually whose descendants would be the Messiah. We know that is Jesus. The plot line remains the same and there are problems. But there is a promise and then there is God's provision through his faithfulness to keep the promise. Last week we saw Jacob's efforts to procure the birthright from his older twin Esau. And all of that would have been null and void or useless without chapter 26 because we see in this chapter how Isaac attains all of his possessions and how Isaac has the promise of God reiterated in his life. In chapter 26, we read about the greatness of God. We see it on display in in many ways. First of all, we see that God is greater than our famines. God is greater than our famines. We've already said that this morning, that we all face issues beyond our control. Isaac didn't find himself in a famine because he made some sort of mistake. He wasn't being punished. It was just the result of living in a fallen world where bad things happen that we cannot control. But we see God always uses all things for the good 
to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And God uses famines. He's greater than our famines. Verse 1, we see a divine problem. He said, now there was a famine in the land. Now this was the promised land. This is where God told Abraham, I will give all this land to your descendants. This is the, the land of promise, and yet the promised land has a famine. And we learn it's not the first time. It says, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. We would think, now God, if this is the promised land, couldn't you fix it where there are no famines? God had a plan. It was a divine problem. It was a problem as far as Isaac was concerned, but not from God's perspective. So, so Isaac went down to Gerar, which is the, the southernmost edge of, of Canaan. Almost left the promised land, like his father Abraham had done. We see this divine problem, followed by a divine prohibition in verse 2. God says, it says, The Lord appeared to him and, and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. I, undoubtedly that was where Isaac was going, because that made sense to him. There's a famine in this land. I'm going to get out of this land. I'm going to go where I can flourish. I'm going to go where I can be comfortable, where I can make a living for my family. And God says, nope, that's not my plan. Don't go down to Egypt. In fact, I want you to stay in the land of which I will tell you, and I want you to sojourn in this land. I want you to, to be a nomad in this land. I want you to be an alien and a stranger in this land. And Isaac's probably thinking, now God, that, that doesn't make sense to me. God, it's his prohibition. Don't go down. And sometimes we've got to do what God calls us to do, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Even on the surface, if it's not what we think is in our best interest, it's God's plan. And then we see a divine promise in verses 3 through 6. God says, I will be with you. Don't overlook that. What a, what a wonderful and a magnificent promise that is for God to say to you, I will be with you. Even in the midst of the famine, God says, I am with you. Reminds me of the word of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. The presence of God in these famines, in these valleys, in the shadow of death, the presence of God is a magnificent promise. Sometimes that's all we've got to cling to. That God's there with me. He says, I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Again, there's that plot line. God says, I have entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, and I'm going to keep that. And we see God's oath. God's oath in this promise. This covenant promise to bless all the nations of the earth. You see, if God allowed something to happen to Isaac that would just wipe him out and all of his descendants would be no more than God's promise would be a lie. And God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make this happen, but you've got to trust me. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. You've got to trust me. And then we, and then we see Isaac's obedience in verse 6. So Isaac lived. He remained. He dwelled in Gerar. He stayed there. Even though it made no sense to him, it was clear to him, it was God's will, God's up to something, and God knows more than me, I'm going to trust him. Isaac didn't like the famine. None of us like the famines we go through. That's why they're called famines. God's greater 
than this. A divine call assumes a human responsibility. A faith response means I trust God. I can count on Him. There was a diving accident in 1967. Left a young girl, 17 years old, by the name of Joni Erickson Tata, left her a quadriplegic. Bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life, without the use of her limbs, could not even use her hands. A famine beyond her control. But what did she do? She trusted in God. She, she, she began to seek how God might be able to use her in her situation, her circumstance. She learned to be able to, to pick up a paintbrush with her teeth and began to draw magnificent portraits. She became a prolific author and a speaker and, and now hosts a, a radio call-in program. She has become an advocate for those with disabilities and how individuals can trust in God to overcome whatever famines we go through and how the church ought to be at the forefront of those providing care and opportunity for those less fortunate. God is greater than our famines. We see that evidenced in Isaac's life. We see that evidenced even today from that message I read uh, this morning from Cheryl uh, I passed on to you. God can take our famines, our, our difficulties, our trials, our, our disappointments, and God can take those and shape those into something greater. But that faith response is key. We've got to obey. That's what Isaac did. Then we see in verses 7 through 11 that God is greater than our failures. Greater than our failures. says, Isaac remained in Gerar. We're like, yes, yes. He obeyed. There is a success. And that's followed immediately by sin. And we're just like, no, man. You got it right. Stay on course. Isaac took his focus off the Lord and put his focus on himself. Verse 7. We see some undeniable flaws in this man. It says, when, the, uh, when Isaac was living in Gerar and when the men of the place asked about his wife, instead of saying, yep, that's my wife, said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of, uh, of my wife, Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Now, we've learned one thing here. The patriarchs have good taste in women. It's the same thing that Abraham said about his wife. Remember, Abraham had a hottie for a wife. So did Isaac, apparently. Because he makes the same stupid mistake that his daddy made before him, and his daddy made that mistake twice. Being amongst strangers and saying, if I say it's my wife, they're going to thump me over the head, and they're going to kill me and take my wife. If I say it's my sister, then they'll, they'll, they'll be okay with me. Yeah, but what about his wife? What about the situation that he might put her in? And not just his wife, but everyone else around him. You see, we make mistakes when we operate out of fear rather than out of faith. Isaac was driven by self-preservation and not by doing the right thing. And because of that, we see understandable frustration comes out in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, it came about when he had been there a long time. Now, for a long time, this charade had been carried on. This was my sister. 
He'd been there a long time, and Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, he looked out through a window, and he saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. That word for caressing there, it's a lot stronger than what we have here, okay? It was more than just a little, a little hug and a pat on the shoulder. Now, I imagine Abimelech's response was probably twofold. Probably his first response, when he looked out the window and saw this man Isaac loving on his sister, his first response is probably, Ew! Disgusting! And those of you all have siblings of the opposite gender, you're probably thinking the same thing. Gross! But then I imagine his second response was, Wait a minute. That's not his sister. That liar, that, that, that no good swindler and, and it says verse 9 Abimelech called Isaac and said behold certainly she is your wife and how did you say she's my sister Isaac said to him because I said I might die on account of her and he said you what about us Abimelech said what is this you have done to us one of the people might have easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us you see, Isaac was just thinking selfishly. He wasn't thinking about how his actions might negatively affect his wife and those around him. That's what sin calls to do. It gives us tunnel vision. All we do is focus on self. Instead of thinking about how we might be a blessing, we start thinking about how I want to keep what I have. And what you might have done, you might have brought guilt upon us understandable frustration that's what sin does it not only affects you it affects those around you negative consequences and we don't always think that way we have short term vision but then in verse 11 we see undeserved favor the king we would imagine say the king you lied to us you put us in danger off with your head verse 11 Abimelech charged all the people saying he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. What? <laughs> Undeserved favor. He was not punished, but he was protected. Why? Because God divinely intervened. God had made a promise, Isaac, through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. And if God wipes him out, there goes the promise. But God intervenes. God offers him something he doesn't deserve. That's forgiveness. Grace. See, yesterday when we were at snow tubing, you know, the, the snow tubing slopes were, were small in comparison to the skiing slopes. And uh, I would sit there sometimes and watch the skiers come down the hill. And I've skied before. It's been about 20 years ago. But I can relate to this, watching the skiers going down the hill. And they're doing well. The next thing you know, they just wipe out. You know, there, there's, there's you know, arms and legs flying every which way, and there's skis and poles and hats and gloves. I mean, everything's just scattered all over the side of the hill. And they lay there for a minute. And imagine if I were to do that today, I'd probably lay there longer than I did 20 years ago. And they lay there. But then they get up, and they assemble all their stuff, get back on the skis, and they, they try it again. Why? Because they've got enough confidence in their own ability to finish the course. I, I'll do better next time. You see, that's not so in the Christian life. It's true, we fall down, we wipe out, and sometimes stuff land everywhere because we, we mess up so bad. But instead of entrusting ourselves to get up and finish and say, I'll, I'll do better next time, 
what we do as Christians, what we ought to do is say, God, I messed up, and God, I need your grace. I look to the cross as my only source of hope to get up, pick myself up, and move forward. God, it is only by Your grace, God. I trust in the cross of Christ being washed in the blood of the Lamb to forgive me, pick me back up, and move me forward, God. I can't do this. I can't do better. I'll end up wiping out again. But God, it's Your grace, and I don't deserve it. That's what we are called to do as Christians, to humble ourselves and say, God, I failed. I messed up. And I have no other option to move forward in life but to trust that the blood of Jesus was sufficient to cleanse me of my sin. Forgive me of all my unrighteousness. Undeserved favor. We see God is greater than our failures. We do fail. And that's no excuse to go out and, well, I'll just fail. We try through sanctification to be holy but when we fail God is greater than our failures and that's hope it was hope for Isaac it's hope for you today finally God is greater than our fears our fears there was some uncertainty in Isaac's life now uncertainty due to conflict there was already some conflict brewing now because of this charade he pulled but things get worse and then the question is asked would God come through he helped me out in this. Is, is God going to come through again? We see, first of all, that his wealth comes from the Lord in verses 12 through 14. Specifically, it says, Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped the same year a hundredfold. Agriculturally speaking, that's impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. God wanted this man to have this wealth. There it was. It's funny how that happens. When God wants something to happen, it happens. A hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and, and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. There was, there was animals and peoples everywhere belonging to him. I think, man, way to go, Isaac, man. God, God fixed you up. He picked you up and he moved you forward. He brought you to a better place, a better situation. And then we read at the end of verse 14 that the Philistines envied him. They envied him. But then what do we see next here? We see verse 15 to 22. His, his worries are taken to the Lord. Instead of saying, all right, well, I've got to find some way to fix this, God. I've got to find some way to, to weasel my, myself out of this situation. He entrusted himself to God. Verse 15, it says, Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Now that's a problem. When you've got a bunch of herds and a bunch of people living in a climate like Palestine, you need water. Lots of water. And after Abraham died, the Philistines, out of, out of envy, out of spite, this just, just loaded dirt all in all in those wells dumped it full of dirt Abimelech said to Isaac go away from us you are too powerful for us so Isaac departed from there and he camped in the valley of Gerar and he settled there now there was already conflict with him and the Philistines because of his lie now there's conflict because they're fighting over a, a common ground there limited regional resources created a conflict of interest but this time he trusted God the Philistines tried their hardest to stop God's plan. Because you see, it goes even further. Verse 18, Now Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham for the Philistines had stopped them 
after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given him. So he's going to keep following in his father's footsteps. But when Isaac's servants dug the well in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours! So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. And they dug another well and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and he dug another well. And this time they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means broad place. You see, the Philistines kept trying to stop Isaac, but God was with him. The enemy will continue to try to thwart God's plan in your life. But you see, what this tells me is that the devil don't have enough dirt to stuff up all the wells that God can create in your life when you humble yourself and you trust yourself to Him. You see, God's will is going to be accomplished and we take our worries to God and we say, God, there is an enemy fighting against you. We do not war against flesh and blood. We know this. Scripture tells us that plainly. We fight a higher power, a stronger being, but we entrust ourselves to the one who is greater. God is greater than all of our fears. We need not worry. We take our worries to the Lord and let God fight our battles for us. You see, God finally provided a well that the Philistines weren't going to take away. And then we see in verses 23 to 24 his word from the Lord. He went up from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night. Went back to where his father Abraham used to dwell and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. There's the promise of his presence again. For I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. You see, he reminded him of this promise. And and, and it's good for us to get into the Word of God and let the Word of God get into us because when we take our focus off the Word and put it on the world, all kinds of problems begin to flood in. All kinds of thoughts and worries begin to creep in. But when the Word of God speaks to us and reminds us that God is with us and we are blessed in him, in his son Jesus Christ there's no need to worry anymore we're still in the famine we're still facing all these fears but we've got this promise and when God speaks there's hope and there's power and we trust it comfort of God's presence and his word is trustworthy and it is assuring Isaac's response verse 25 is worship of the Lord So he built an altar there and he called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. His worship of the Lord. He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. It's the same thing his father had done in many places. Abraham had done the same thing. You see, it wasn't just Abraham's negative characteristics that were passed down to Isaac. There were some positives. One of those is worshiping the one true and living God. You see, Isaac began to understand, okay, God, you've brought me through this. I've messed up, and you, and you saved me by your grace. And, and God, I, I'm, I'm fighting this war, but you have brought me through this battle and brought me to the other side, and you've blessed me, and you've promised that you're still going to be with me. His response was worship, was praise. He built an altar that was a permanent thing to do. It's a sign that he believed and trusted God. It's important for us to do that, to worship God. Even when things don't go the way we intend, we worship God. Why? Because God's worthy. 
and he deserves it. Finally, we see his well-being from the Lord. Verses 26 through 33. It says, Now Abimelech came to him, and he brought his advisors with him. Isaac responded to him, Why have you come to me since you hate me, and you sent me away? And the king was like, No, 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 you, you got it twisted. We didn't send you away because we hated you. Yeah, they did. We sent you away because, you know, there wasn't enough room and But now we see, verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let us there now be an oath between us and let us make a covenant. You see, they recognized that they were fighting against a higher power. And they realized that they were not going to be able to succeed. In fact, Isaac was succeeding even without them. And they're like, we're fighting a higher power. Let's humble ourselves. Let's enter into a, a, an oath, a covenant, an agreement. And that is exactly what you need to do to find forgiveness of your sins, to find eternal life. You recognize you are fighting against a higher power. You are at enmity with God, and you will not prevail. And you humble yourselves and say, God, let's, let's, let's have an oath together. Let's enter into a, a covenant relationship together because I recognize without you I'm doomed. And God says that's available. It's available through the cross for each and every one of us. We recognize our failures and recognize that we stand guilty in God's court of law and that we will spend eternity in hell without God's forgiveness and we humble ourselves and say God I, I, I want an oath I want a covenant with you I want a relationship with you that's binding and God says whoever calls the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved but you've got to humble yourself it's a problem with many folks they don't recognize they are fighting against God and there is no hope to win you need to wave the white flag and surrender and say, God, I'm tired of fighting you because I know I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fail in the end and I will be destroyed in the end. God, I, I need forgiveness. Wave that white flag and God will forgive you. He's a God of mercy and grace. God wants you to enter into that relationship with Him. He says, we see that you are blessed. and We don't want you to do us any harm. We know now you are blessed of the Lord. And they made a feast and they ate and they drank. And in the morning they arose and they exchanged vows, exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them away. They departed him in peace. And it came about the same day. Quinky dink. No, the same day. Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. We found water. Now God provided for his well-being because he had a covenant arrangement with God. And his enemy recognized they needed a covenant agreement with him because he was on the right side. That same day, it's interesting to me, this chapter started with what? A famine. And it ends with what? A well. Hence the title of the sermon, All's Well That Ends Well. You know, every time I, uh, I hear the word well, it takes me back to when I was a kid. My, my mamaw Gilvin lived on a farm in, in Montgomery County, mom's mother. 
And she lived on a farm in Montgomery County and, and did not have indoor plumbing. And I would go out there. We'd go there every Sunday after church. I'd go out there and stay you know, all summer long and just enjoyed being out there. But I always thought it was peculiar. They had no indoor plumbing, but they had a well. And there was always a source of water there. But in the back room there, there was, a, there was boards. And they always said, you know, don't go over and walk on those boards. You might fall through. There's a well down there. When I was a little kid, I heard there was a well down there. I wasn't thinking W-E-L-L. I was thinking W-H-A-L-E. I was thinking, Memo's got Shamu living under her house. And my cousins would come over and they'd go, hey, guys, get off the wood. No, man, you're going to end up like Jonah. You're going to fall through there and you're going to end up in the well that lives underneath Memo's house. Of course, I grew older and began to understand, okay, that's not the kind of well they were talking about. But even though there was no indoor plumbing there, there was always a dependable, faithful source of water. And I see that in the Scripture today. And it tells us that we can trust God to keep His promises and accomplish His will for each and every generation because there is a well, a water well, W-E-L-L, there is a well that will not run dry. And so what we see is that God's Son is sole satisfaction for the soul. That the Son of God, the living water, is the only satisfaction that you and I have for the soul. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Come, let who is thirsty come and take the water of life without cost. All is well that ends well that only ends well if you will humble yourself, call out to God, enter into that covenant relationship with Him by faith and repentance and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together.